0: Welcome to The Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, the best bits of The Explainer 2020, and what a year it has been. This time in 2019, looking ahead, we thought the general election and Brexit would be the biggest stories of the 12 months ahead. But in January, the podcast did ask how worried we should be about a new virus being reported in Wuhan, China. Listening back to our guests from that day, they do have a sense of urgency to explain how bad this novel coronavirus could be, but none of us really would have guessed what was coming. But by March, it was clear we'd be shutting down much of our society to try to suppress COVID-19 and protect lives. A truly weird time in our existence led to all of us figuring out how to continue our work in dramatically different circumstances. As I've mentioned here before, we record the explainer remotely. My spot is under a blanket at my kitchen table in my one bed Dublin flat. We've had wonderful guests call in from all over the country and the world to share their expertise with us. We hope you have enjoyed listening to the episodes as much as we love creating them and learning from them too. We know we have incredibly loyal listeners and we Thank you so much for that. And if you'd like to support The Explainer into 2021, you can contribute to thejournal.ie on a monthly or one-off basis. Just visit thejournal.ie forward slash contribute, or you can simply leave us a review or rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Your support is really, really important to us, and we all absolutely love The Explainer and want to be able to do more and more with it come 2021. Right now, though, we're going to delve into the last 12 months and bring you some of our best bits and pieces of information that wowed us or stuck with us for some reason. I've been given the honour of going first, and I was actually torn between two episodes. The first was our live show a couple of days before this year's general election. Yep, again, as I said, it's mad to think that that was this year. But it was pipped at the post by one of the year's big sports news crossover stories, Daniel Kinahan is obviously a name well known to viewers of the 6-1, but sports fans in the UK started hearing a lot more about him in April and May of this year. His dreams of becoming a big time boxing promoter looked set to come true with champions like Tyson Fury name checking him in videos. Although it didn't work out as planned in the end, one of the fights he had been working towards, an English matchup between Anthony Joshua and Fury in the Middle East, isn't totally off the table. In May we spoke to the 42's Gav Casey about the mind-boggling amounts of money involved in that potential bout.
1: Yeah, like I have heard 500 million dollars cited a few times. I don't know really where um from where that figure emanates. Like it, it probably seems a little bit on the high side for me if you consider that would have been roughly what was on offer for Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. Now, albeit that was that was 5 years ago and uh, purses have gone up since like like most things in life, but um it's, it, listen, it's difficult to know, but I suppose one thing you could say for it is that to have it in Saudi Arabia, for example, or have it in one of the Gulf states would be worth a lot more to both men than it would be if they had it in, say, Wembley which you know would be the ideal location for it two British heavyweight fighters um, like for example when Anthony Joshua fought Andy Ruiz in Saudi Arabia a few few months back I think between Joshua and Eddie Hearn it was probably worth an extra 40 to 45 million quid to them and uh, you know they p- took plenty of flak for it at the time naturally because Saudi Arabia has an absolutely appalling record on the human rights front uh, but they they took the money I mean to put it plainly and that would be accentuated and magnified again you'd imagine if it was fury and joshua the biggest fight that can be made in boxing right now um and i'd say certainly you'd be looking at a a total purse of upwards of 200 250 million quid anyway i might even be underselling that but i I think the 500 million that's been cited elsewhere is is probably a little bit too far at the moment
0: and that's split between the two men and their teams
1: yeah, like, it, it, again, it depends. It goes back to what we were saying at the start in terms of um, how you thrash out a, a deal and you would have probably Kinnahin uh, negotiating or at least people associated with him negotiating on behalf of Fury, who's managed by MTK. And then you'd have Hearn and whoever um, negotiating on behalf of Joshua. And there are all sorts of factors that would be taken into consideration as to who was the biggest star on the global stage. Um, Fiori really would be considered now the heavyweight champion even though he only holds one belt like he's undefeated whereas Joshua did lose to Ruiz and uh, has regained those belts since so like that would be a matter for, for promoters you'd imagine it would be something close to a 50-50 split maybe 60-40 one way or the other there might be a concession made there are also rematch clauses to be taken into consideration where you can lay out for a future fight uh, if I win, I get seventy percent of the next one, and so on. But we have to take into consideration as well that this fight isn't in any way uh, near confirmed. Um, that both of them will take fights in the interim before that, and in heavyweight boxing, as they say, anything is possible. So it could be, um, you know, it could the, all of these aspirations might go up in smoke. You never know. But um, I think with uh, a fight like that. Uh, from the perspective of all of the, the stakeholders like it is the very pinnacle of the sport it's the world heavyweight title all the belts are on the line it's a, it's a massive money fight you could look at it as a 50-50 and, uh, and basically make plans for a rematch maybe even three of them and if you're talking about like a rematch maybe you could take that back to Wembley or, or somewhere in the UK but realistically if you're going to make an extra 100 million between you all you'll probably head back to the, the Gulf States or the Middle East again
2: Hello, Christine Bohan here. I was torn between a few different episodes for this, including the one about why Covid-19 spread so quickly in Northern Ireland, and also our very lively episode on the night of the general election count, when we managed to get seven of our reporters into our little studio back in pre-Covid times. But in the end, I went for a nice controversial one, and it was the episode about why Black and Tans was trending on Twitter in Ireland in January, And more broadly, I guess, it was about how Ireland is going to commemorate the events of 1920 to 1923. So people might remember uh, there was due to be a commemoration in Dublin Castle in January. To remember the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC, and the Dublin Metropolitan Police as part of the state programme to mark the decade of centenaries. And this would have been the first time that the state would have held an event for the families of these specific policemen. Because even now, even a hundred years later, it's incredibly sensitive because of the role of these police forces and what they did to stop people who were fighting for Irish independence. So people weren't happy about this event, Uh, there were thousands of tweets about it. And to be clear, the event wasn't about commemorating the Black and Tans, but people weren't happy about the RIC being commemorated in this way. The event ended up being cancelled and it sparked a conversation about how exactly we're going to remember this time in Ireland's history. We managed to get Dr. Mary McAuliffe and Professor Unino Halpin on for this episode, who are the exact people you would want to hear explaining this and putting it into context. And they talked about this and how Ireland is going to negotiate remembering this very divisive and very brutal time in our history.
3: Well, I think we have to have these conversations. There's no getting away from it. This is part of our history. This is part of the complications and nuances, uh, traumas, uh, you know, of our histories. um, And... We, you know, the the takes, the hot takes that are coming from politicians, both from in the Republic and in Northern Ireland about how this will, uh, you know, derail a united Ireland. Well, you know, is is the conversation about a united Ireland any closer because of Brexit or because of other things than it was 10 years ago? It may or may not be, depending on who you're talking to. But for somebody, you know, for some of the Ulster unionists to say, oh, well, you know, this shows that the Republic is a cold house for unionists still is them uh, being a bit disingenuous because this is a conversation um, that is that is happening here about our histories, about the, the very horrible things that did happen, about what the black and tans did, about how we need to look at the RIC and the black and tans and the auxiliaries, about how we need to look back over 100 years, which isn't a very long time in history because we're talking about the formation of both uh, states in, on the island of this Ireland. And yes, we have to have these complicated conversations. Uh, we need to have them sensibly. Uh, we need to be able to listen to each other. We it doesn't mean we have to accept everybody. So there's no hierarchy of victims or winners or losers or hierarchy of what, what's more important or not. It's about understanding that this is messy and complicated and and needs to be looked at with nuance uh, and, you know, not hashtags. And that's where I would agree where social media really does flatten out the conversation sometimes Um, and where the politicians now are kind of inserting themselves to, to, to take a uh, you know, pot shots at each other.
4: Hmm. Can, I, can I just come yeah, in there? Yeah. I agree completely. I think um, also for example, uh, people in the name of the IRA committed appalling oh, yeah. uh, did appalling things uh, but the, 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 there's all sorts of uh, issues and areas and and uh, where I'm sorry this is a terrible cliche, but not everybody's going to agree. Uh, on, on 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 what on what, on what was noble, on what was justified, what wasn't justified. Uh, but I think we, if we all agree in the proposition that that different people and communities, and even different states, are entitled in a sense to commemorate the past and to explore it as as as, as they as they as their communities feel fit. I think that's as far as we can go. And I think when we get to the Civil War, I am, it drives me mad. There's a magic number uh, called 77, which is always brought out as the number of uh, Republicans uh, uh, executed uh, by the pro-treaty side, what becomes the free state uh, during the Civil War. Nobody has ever counted the number of people inverted commas executed uh, by anti-treaty republicans uh, during the truce and truce during the civil war but but if if we're going to look at the 77 then we should also be looking at anti-treaty conduct during the Civil War and not only against burning big houses, there's a fixation with burning, the burning of big houses. I'm more interested for example the burning of small houses in the War of Independence and I'm more interested in the the conduct of all the forces during the War of Independence and during the Civil War.
3: I would agree with that and particularly I mean my area of of interest and research is on women, women's contribution and women's experiences and so I'm looking a lot at the very targeted gendered and sexualized violence uh, everything from you know hair cropping to to sexual harassment to rape during this period in the war of independence and civil war and while you can say it ha- both sides contributed to this there isn't a 50-50 balance either. Um, uh, during the reprisals, the the Crown forces did a lot of um, targeted gendered violence from beating up coming among women. Um, one particular woman down in, in Longford talked about having nine teeth beaten out of her head in one particular incident, to hair cropping, to, you know, um, obvious um, what they call them, outrages, committed, they use the term outrage, the term sexual harassment or abuse or rape isn't used, committed against women. But the IRA are also attacking women, uh, women for com- company keeping or suspected uh, uh, passing intelligence to the RIC. Um, and so you see this sort of complications going on. There's, there, there's no, the, nobody comes out of this um, cleanly um, and nobody comes out of any war cleanly. And and enough, a lot of these histories are going to to come out. So when we talk about the controversy that you know happened this week about the RIC uh, and this commemoration, we have a lot more to go through in the next 3 4 years um that will be much more difficult and I think we need and the government needs and uh all, those of us who are professional historians and those who are interested in and in, in basically anyone who wants to have uh, an input into this, there needs to be a a model whereby conversations can be had without this becoming a meltdown.
5: Hi, I'm Aoife Barry, producer on The Explainer podcast, and for my clip for the best of episode, I've chosen one from the episode which is called How Did Misinformation About the Coronavirus Spread on WhatsApp in Ireland? So for this episode, we had two of our reporters on board. We had our deputy editor, Christine Bowen, who you just heard a couple of minutes ago, and then we also had our reporter, Sean Murray. Now I picked this particular episode because I think it really underscores how strange this year was and how significant 2020 was for things like fact-checking and debunking. Because back at the time that we recorded this podcast, it was in March, and we had the coronavirus spreading widely throughout the world and Ireland. But we also had, alongside that, a huge volume of misinformation being spread. And that was being spread chiefly on WhatsApp alongside Facebook. But WhatsApp was hugely important because people were sending on voice notes and also images and forwarded messages. So I picked this clip from that episode because it shows how Ireland is different to other countries when it comes to fake news. So Christine will talk about that. And then later on in the clip, you'll hear Sean giving a really interesting and very specific example of one message that spread like wildfire. Christine,
0: just before I move on to Sean and his um, debunking, I just have a two-part question and both are why, so it's a difficult enough one. Why had fake news not taken hold in Ireland before and why is this story different or do we know anything about that yet?
2: So Ireland is different from other countries for a couple of reasons. And firstly, we have a much lower volume of false news generally than other countries, but also the false news stories that are spread here are different. So a lot of places, a lot of countries, particularly the US, the UK and across Europe, might see viral hoaxes. So things like the Pope has come out to support Donald Trump in his election or Michelle Obama gave the finger to Donald Trump at the White House. Ireland never sees these kind of viral hoaxes. Um, And we also don't see the kind of recurring themes that stick around for years that we see in other countries. Again, Brexit, Trump. um, Across Europe, there was so so much false news around the issue of migration. And Ireland never really saw these stories. And they're ones that feed into confirmation bias or existing fears of an audience. So Ireland has seen time-specific ones, like say around the water protests, but generally they just fade away quite quickly. So they've never quite latched on. And I think there's a few reasons for it, but partly I think the political discourse is just different here to other countries that we never had the left-right split that other countries had after the recession, which led to polarisation in a lot of other countries. And once you have polarisation, then you've got the perfect conditions for false news to flourish. And because Ireland didn't have that, we don't have that polarisation um, as much as other countries do, where fake news is, is particularly bad. Also, we don't have partisan news organizations. Um, we don't have, you know, there there are low levels of disinformation, but it hasn't really been baked into the national discourse. We see it on, you know, a couple of small Facebook pages, which speak to a small audience, and occasionally something will break out, and, you know, that one post will do well. But generally, it just it just hasn't caught on. And partly as well, you know, we don't have public figures spreading disinformation like, you know, there is in the US, with Donald Trump, for example, or with kind of put, with interest groups across other countries. So Ireland has kind of got this unique set of circumstances, which has served us really well. I mean, we've been so lucky not to have the kind of plague of false news that, that so many other countries ha- have had. And, you know, not to discount the bit that we, we have seen some, but it's much more like whack-a-mole. It's more like, you know, the odd one story will pop up and be shared around a bit and then hopefully gets debunked or people don't pay attention to it. Um, so I think Ireland's been really lucky. In, in that way.
0: Yeah, un- until now, Sean, if just bring you in there um so you can tell us because you did um, fact check the kind of initial big viral one, which initially started out as a voice note on WhatsApp um, telling us that the Defence Forces were preparing for a status red lockdown.
6: I think this one in particular is very interesting because just to go back over some of the examples that you were giving earlier on, this is really the masterpiece of the genre, as it were. Um, it's important to put it in context. So on Thursday, The Taoiseach announced something kind of unprecedented, that schools would close, creches would close, colleges would close. Like for a lot of people, we've never seen anything like this. And then for Friday morning, I know myself, like a lot of other people, we woke up to this WhatsApp voice note. And as you guys both said, it sounded quite authoritative. It sounded as if it was um, someone within the Defence Forces talking to colleagues. It tells listeners that they need to be in the barracks early on Monday morning. It tells listeners the equipment they need to bring with them, and it also says that, it says the shock will make an announcement at 8am, and following this so-called announcement, which came down from HQ, the army will be patrolling the streets to make sure that the public is observing the so-called lockdown, this red alert wa- lockdown that was coming into effect. And obviously, as we know, Monday came and went, and nothing of the sort happened.
0: So how did you go about debunking it?
6: Well, for, like, first, first of all, I heard the message myself, and it was being shared with me from a few different sources, and like... Anyone who's heard it, like there's something that just sounds a bit off from it, but people were sharing it anyway. So I said, okay, if it's the defence forces that are going into this red alert lockdown, the first people to call are the defence forces themselves. And uh, on Friday morning, I gave um, the spokesperson for the defence forces a call, and I said, here, I, this this message has been shared around quite widely. It sounds a bit off. What what are your what, What's your take on it? And um, I I thought it was quite refreshing from the spokesperson for the defence forces, it's like they were they were happy. To be given a chance to say how rubbish this is and how 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 awful it is to be spreading this mis- misinformation. The spokesperson actually said to me was, is that it was unhelpful and irresponsible. And of course he said that there was no substance whatsoever to these claims.
7: Hi, it's Nicky Ryan here. I wanted to end on a topic which was one of the most important events of 2020, for Ireland at least, but it might not be one of the first things you remember when you think of 2020, and that's the general election. The result was absolutely monumental and the coalition government formed afterwards unprecedented. But one aspect that we wanted to focus on once the government was actually formed is how you hand over a government from one administration to another. As Shanae predicted in her introduction back in June, it remains a topical issue still today as we watch the handover between Trump and Biden in the united states we spoke to fergal Purcell, who was Enda kenny's government press secretary and is now working for edelman's public affairs team and the bit that i found most interesting was about whether there's essentially a handbook for new ministers setting foot in a department for which they have no prior experience of it happens all the time and it's sometimes cited as something that's not best practice but most of the time it's completely unavoidable
0: For those who maybe have unexpected ministries or have ministries that aren't weren't necessarily their portfolio before, if they were spokespeople, how how quickly can they possibly get read fully? Like how how possibly can they get read into the job and also settle on their priorities and who do they give those priorities to? Uh,
8: That's a really good question because it is the most important element of taking over the role. So you talked about people who've never been in the jobs before. You know, you talked about people with no experience, other people with experience. And I remember meeting a couple of ministers at the start and the sense of being overwhelmed is quite palpable. That's why the advisors are so important. There's no possible way that you can read into everything. So there's a bit of a cheat sheet in some sense, and it's done before you ever get the department at all. And one of the things that, you know, um, one particular individual spoke to me about was they sat down With their advisors, two, literally the three of them sat down with a white piece of paper and said, what do I want to do in this department? Like what absolutely do I want to do? What do I want to achieve? What do I want to get done that's in the national interest? What am I obliged to do? And then to begin to think about what the priorities within that context, before you get handed a file, before you get handed a file, because the department might have priorities as they see it in the context of the, pro- the programme for government or maybe existing pieces of work f- that are continuing uh, even though all bills fall when the government changes uh, uh, but a sponsor a sponsor of a bill can, can re-energise it but they might want to continue some pieces of work. So I think you have to go in with absolute clarity about what you want to do and have th- your three priorities. now. If you were part of the Programme for Government Negotiations or if you were part of the formulation of your own manifesto, that's not going to be a million miles away from what's going to be there anyway. Uh, and, you know, you would have had a say about what went into the Programme for Government in relation to your own area. So, you know, I mean, you can already see Stephen Donnelly. You know, he has nailed his colours to the COVID mast. I'm going to deal with this first. I'm going to, you know, this is my priority. It remains the case that we are in a crisis on this issue, you know, there you go. Like Pascal knows, I need to manage the resources of the state to make sure that whatever checks we write, we can pay back in due course while servicing all the needs of the the country. Uh, Social protection, we need to talk about, you know, COVID payments. To what extent can we afford to keep paying those? Do we keep paying them or do we keep paying the wage subsidy scheme first. All the big, big questions. So you can see what the priorities would be for individuals. Norman has to deal with going back to school. The, the public sector pay deals are going to be very interesting now uh, for for Michael McGrath. No one's talking about them. I think they're going to be interesting and how that's all going to be dealt with. So so that's how you do it. That's what you do to avoid getting hazed.
0: Would, would hazing happen?
8: I don't think it happens intentionally. Like I, I don't think it happens intentionally, but it does happen. I mean, I remember we were on the way over to Brussels, and they were just handing these files to Enda. Like there was, like War and Peace was a chapter, you know, and it was file after file. T-shirt sergeant, sorry, could you read, could you have a quick read of that? You know,
0: there's no quick read. This is people within his department.
8: Yeah, there's no quick read of that now. That's not, you know, could you have a, a look at that? You know, everyone knows that. You know, so so what, what Enda did. And, and what we did and what people do is what do I absolutely need to know going into this room now? And what do I what's urgent for me to know, what's important for me to know and what, what what's nice to know? And that's why we did it. And you just do the reading on that basis. And um, it's not intentional to, to haze people, but of course it happens. I mean, there's a minister sitting down somewhere today, you know, Listen to this podcast and are doing what they do. They're already trying to be listening to podcasts. They're probably over up to their eyeballs in, in stuff. And they're probably asking themselves, how in God's name am I going to do this? And that's a good sign. That's a sign that they've seen the scale of the job ahead of them. If they're not feeling that, you know, the penny hasn't dropped.
0: Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Nikki, Aoife and Christine for their picks. As I said at the start, if you do want to support The Explainer into 2021, you can visit thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off or monthly contribution to the journal. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.